If you have your bulletin with you, you can take that now and open it up, and inside you'll see an outline and a guide for the morning. I respect you, and I respect anybody who takes the time to come and to be a part of our worship gathering, and I think that you deserve to be spoken to with clarity, and you deserve the truth. I believe that you are thoughtful, intelligent people, and I think that it is incumbent upon us as preachers and as leaders in this church to be honest with you. If there's one particular cornerstone of this church that I want everybody to understand, it is what makes up a church, and specifically, what's the priority of this church? There's no sense in us trying to make you think that we're something we're not just to attract you because you are smart enough to figure out that we are not what you thought we were and then you will leave. We also don't want you here thinking that we are something that we are not because you may not actually appreciate the priorities that we have. It is better for us to come right out front with it and tell you what we believe and what we teach and what we hold dear because the reality is there is something that we are and something that we do. And there is something that other churches are and other churches do. And if you want what they are and they do, you should go to that church. But if you believe that what we are and what we do ministers to your soul because it is truly scriptural and grants glory to God, then you will not only be welcome here, but you will feel that you're welcome here. There's no point in anyone trying to win you over by trying to convince you that we're going to meet your special particular need. In an effort to be truly honest, let me say we are not so much concerned about your particular needs or what you perceive to be your needs, and we're not going to jump over hurdles trying to meet them in order to win you and keep you. In fact, what we're going to do instead is to do what we believe that God has called us to do. And furthermore, believing that He will then attract to us those with whom that resonates and they say, yes, that is right, that ministers to my soul, that feeds my mind, that is what helps me to grow to maturity, that is what I know I can do in order to bring glory to God. Those prayers, that scripture reading, those songs, those sermons, that fellowship, and therefore, it is not based primarily upon preference, tradition, denomination, but truly upon something that is supernatural and we believe will bind us together through good times and bad so that we will truly represent God's church and His kingdom on earth. Now, with that sort of as an introduction, let me begin by telling you today that what we're going to do is to take a look at this idea of the church. And I want to talk about the church in terms of the invisible church, the visible church, what the church is supposed to do, and how that plays out in terms of the gospel, the ordinances, and church discipline. Let's begin with understanding that the church itself is actually an invisible church. Now, that might sound a little bit strange and mystical. Let me clarify what we're saying. 
When we talk about the church being an invisible church, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, you'll read this, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ, and it is the representation of the fullness of Christ that fills all in all. His universal, invisible kingdom manifest in the church, in this assembly of believers. And the reason we call it the invisible church is because it is not one particular local church. It is all of those who believe. It is all of those who are part of the eternal covenant who are part of the covenant of redemption. Those who before the foundation of the world were chosen by the Father. Those whom the Son was sent to save. Those whom the Holy Spirit awakened and now fills. And that's the case all over the world. So that you can hop on a plane and go to any country and meet up with any group of believers and feel like you are welcome with them because you are part of the universal invisible church. It is the whole number of the elect all around the world, and there is only one people of God. We believe that, we affirm it. But it's more than that. It is also a visible church. And by visible church, we're talking about the fact that the church is a local, visible, personal physical gathering. It is what we are doing right now together in this room in the presence of one another. Whenever the church gathers, the church is the church in a visible way. The church has been called by God to gather on the Lord's Day, which was the day of Sunday as we understand it, And they are to come together for the purpose of doing very specific things that he's called us to do, and we'll talk about those in a moment. But that local church, when it gathers, is the visible church. And we had this read to us earlier from Ephesians chapter 4, this larger section, but just listen as we read again from chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. The reason that this church gathers together in a visible way, a local way, physically, is so that the following can occur. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Traditionally, the visible church has been described as the organized society of professing believers. And the reason for that is that we need to be built up and encouraged, reminded of the gospel. Certain individuals have been given as gifts to the church to teach us, to equip us, to challenge us, to build us up, to make us mature in Christ, that we might be able to be strong, no longer children, but grown-ups, so that we're not tossed to and fro like 
a boat in the open ocean, by every wind of doctrine, every new idea, every fad, the latest book. We're supposed to be grounded in the truth because the reality is we live in a difficult and deceiving world filled with cunning, wicked humans who would love to infect the church with something that is not healthy for her and deprive her and strip her of that which is. We live in a world that is filled with people who are crafty and deceitful. And if we begin to think that we can just casually gather for the purpose of doing something good for the community, we are losing sight of the fact that we need to come together to be built up and constantly challenged with the truth. And this is why it's important to do this physically and corporately, to receive the written Word of God through the preaching and through the singing and through the praying and through the reading. In fact, you can't worship as a member of the body of Christ when you withdraw from the body of Christ. You don't worship with the body of Christ over live stream. You don't worship with the body of Christ individually and separated from the rest of the fellowship. In fact, the context for living as an individual Christian, as described in the Bible, is always within the fellowship of a local church. That local church has a duty before God to conduct itself in a certain way, to proclaim a certain message, to perform certain ordinances, and to practice certain corrections. And because the Lord cares about His bride, and He cares about His church, and His body, and His flock, and whatever other metaphor you wish to use, He has instructed us on how to do that well for our good and for His ultimate glory. And to neglect those clear and specific instructions is to put yourself in the way of all manner of correction and judgment and discipline and pain. The church, beloved, is not a gathering that is aimed at trying to make every person feel comfortable, to make every person's musical preference matched, to make every person's felt needs reached, to make every person's missing sense of affirmation healed. It is to do certain very particular and eternally significant things, which, if done properly and if received properly, will more than compensate for whatever issues you're dragging in here because you're still in the flesh. I promise. Now, the first of those is the preaching of the gospel. And before I go too much further, I need to remind you that the preaching of the gospel, the telling forth of the gospel, is not done only by the person standing behind this pulpit. In fact, the preaching of the gospel is done every time, Lord willing, somebody opens their mouth to speak here. Already this morning, you've heard it in the prayers. You've heard it in the reading of Scripture. You have heard it in the testimonies that were given before baptism. You have heard it in the singing and hopefully from the person sitting on either side of you during the singing. The gospel is the good news. And that good news goes out all the time, everywhere. Secondly, the good news is not something that is purely evangelistic. 
The good news is not something that is preached only to unbelievers. Now, it is certainly preached to unbelievers because it is the good news that you can lay down your sin, lay down your self-righteousness, and receive from Christ the finished work that will be the only works ever judged before the throne of God if you are in Him. However, it's also a reminder to you who are already in Christ because as you continue by the power of the Holy Spirit, to live a life out of gratitude that brings glory to Him, you need to be reminded and encouraged that as difficult as that is, that His love for you will never change, that your security is never in question, and that your assurance is based on the power of the one in whom you have faith, not in the power of your own faith. And every Christian needs to be reminded of that regularly. So, what do we mean when we're talking about preaching the gospel? Let's answer that question this morning. There are several places we could go, of course, but let's start with 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. We're jumping in midstream in Paul's thought here, but I think it's important. I've chosen the letters that were written to the Corinthian believers as the basis scripturally for the sermon this morning, just because I want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write these very clear letters to the Corinthian church, not because the Corinthian church was the best church in the neighborhood, not because the Corinthian church was doing so well they earned more letters than the rest of the churches. In fact, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, you'll know that it was anything but a good, solid church, as it were. If one of you, 2,000 years ago, were leaving this church because you had taken a job in Corinth and you called me up and said, I'm looking for a good church in Corinth, which one do you recommend? I probably wouldn't say this one. This was not a church that was defined by its absolute fidelity to the gospel and to the scriptures and to living a life of holiness based on the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was known for two things, confusion and corruption. That was about the way you would describe this church, and yet, this is the one that Paul writes to numerous times and provides such wonderful clarification. No better place, perhaps, than when he talks about the gospel. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, talking about his particular ministry, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The gospel is the ministry of the new covenant, the new covenant gospel. And that word ministry is a, is a word that is used numerous times, and it is always used with just a couple rare outliers in the context of the church. A ministry of the church is something that is done by the church and for the church. And the most important thing that can be done by the church and for the church, Paul says, is this preaching of the gospel, and it is not the letter but the Spirit. In fact, if it is the letter of the law, then we are in trouble. Let me clarify what he's saying. First of all, by telling you what he's not saying, he is not saying the letter of the law versus the Spirit of the law, meaning just sort of the intent of the law versus what it actually says. 
It is not literal versus figurative. Let me give you an illustration. So yesterday, both myself and John Stead were driving into the church here for a memorial service. And we were both driving along the same freeway. We're both coming from essentially the same location. We are both headed in the same direction. We are both driving on the same freeway. The difference is John was driving by the letter of the law. I was driving by the spirit of the law. (laughs) You get my point. That is not what Paul is saying here. It's much more significant. In fact, what he is saying is that If it's the letter of the law, then Christ died for nothing, Galatians 2.21. Because Matthew 5.17 reminds us, as Christ says, that He came to fulfill that law, not to abolish it. But if you preach the letter of the law, then you are preaching law. You're saying to people who are already trying to do better, do more. And what you do is you end up with a very distorted message, and there are churches, I'm afraid, that have gone this direction to where people come and what they hear is more and more law. You're trying hard, but excel still more. You're doing well, but you can do better. Here are five ways to do it even better. Here are three solutions. Here are two keys. Here are seven strategies. And you go away with this imperative command of do, do, do. And you might think, well, who would ever want to be under the oppression of that kind of preaching? Well, listen, brothers and sisters, moralistic preaching can attract a crowd because it's very satisfying to people that like to be told what to do. It's very satisfying for people that like to judge their own performance and grade themselves on a curve. But that is not the gospel. In fact, the letter of the law is not what we preach, but rather the Spirit, because it is the Spirit that gives life. Jesus says that of Himself in John chapter 6, verse 63, that it is He who brings life by the Spirit into the person. Real, true, eternal, transforming life. In one of the most important passages of Holy Scripture that address this, the Apostle Paul says to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Do you see the difference? There is Spirit and there is law. There is life, and there is death. And when you preach law, you preach death. And when you preach spirit, you preach life. Now, unless you think this is something that I just made up, we can go back to 1558 in a writing called The Christian Faith, and Theodore Beza said this, quote, We divide this word into two principal parts or kinds. The one is called the law, the other the gospel. For all the rest can be gathered under the one or the other of these two headings. Ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. If Christianity was abusive and corrupted in 1558, 
imagine what it's like today. If this principle, not properly understood, served to burden and bind the consciences of Christians with a heavy load for which they were never intended to carry, how much worse do you think it is today with nearly 500 years of practice? Brothers and sisters, this is not a small matter, and it is not something that any of you have been unaffected by in one level or another. And therefore, it is something that at this church, in this local assembly, anyone who stands behind this pulpit will need to demonstrate a clear understanding of before they are set loose to present that gospel, lest they unintentionally preach something that is actually destructive, not restorative. Moralism is anything that hitches your assurance to your performance. The letter is bad news of God's requirements that I cannot fill, but the gospel is the good news of God's provision in Christ so that I can. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to be beginning a new series of messages through a new book. It's going to be the book of James. And we're going to see how it is that we will one day be judged according to the law and the works of the law, but how thankfully it will not be because of how well we did in obeying God's holy law, but because of how Christ lived and fulfilled it and then gave it to us as His righteousness. The second thing that a healthy church will do is to practice the ordinances. Let me begin by describing an ordinance over against a sacrament. Now, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are of different denominations and different theological traditions use different terminology. So, if you come from a church where you use the word sacrament, I don't want you to think you're being attacked here. Uh, I'm okay with the word sacrament. I just think I want to be clear on what we believe they are versus what somebody who might use that term thinks that they can perform. Let me just be clear about this. There's an ordinance and there's a sacrament. The word sacrament typically means that there is a special infusion of grace. So some of our brothers and sisters who grew up in a, in a Lutheran denomination I would have been told that through infant baptism that there is a creation of faith. That's what their terminology says in their own documents. Uh, some who grew up in, in other Reformed churches uh, they would believe that uh, though baptism doesn't necessarily create faith, it is the way for somebody to be marked out much like circumcision was so that you could be introduced into the covenant community of the Christian church. Now, in both of those situations, they typically refer to this as a sacrament, and it's typically for infants. And because we have a, a different understanding of baptism, a different understanding of the continuity of the covenant that God made with Abraham and how it affects the church today. Uh, we are not what you call paedo-baptist. Paedo, like where you get the word pediatric from, like children. Not paedo-baptist, but we're what we call credo-baptist. Bear with me, I'll define it. Meaning that there is a confession, there's a proclamation of faith. Now, I believe that we have brothers and sisters who are paedo-baptists and brothers and sisters who are credo-baptists, and there are things that we're not going to necessarily agree on, but this is really not something that is going to be an issue of 
gospel separation. It's not going to be something that determines the eternal destiny of one's soul. In fact, anybody, unless they teach the false doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church preaches, that this somehow actually saves the soul, as long as they don't acknowledge that, then honestly, we can love one another and simply agree that one day, one of us will be exposed as wrong. And in that day, we just have to be really nice to our Presbyterian friends. That's all, okay? <laughs> because of the noetic effect, well, we, are, we are all sinners. We are all in the flesh. We're all wrong about things. We both agree the Bible is true. The Bible is right. One of us is wrong. And in the end, we'll find out. That's why at this church, you're not going to see me harping on a bunch of detailed eschatological teachings. I'm not going to tell you that you can try to find out how Russia and Ukraine fits into the book of Revelation. None of these things are revealed to us. And by the way, it doesn't, in case you're wondering. That's not what we do here. We're not going to try to find some fanciful connection to Scripture that doesn't exist to simply promote our preferences. Instead, what I want to say is this at our church is an ordinance. It's done because we believe that God ordained it. He required it. He expects it of us. And that it happens within the context of a local church. That's why this is fitting into the church sermon. There is a separate message on baptism, but within the local church we do this. We don't need to go to the ocean. We don't need to go to the Jordan River. We certainly don't do it privately. It's done within the assembly of the believers. It's a function of the local church, the visible church. It's done to, to encourage and build up other Christians. It's a public testimony to say, I'm one of you. Hold me accountable, if you will, please, to the, the commandments of Scripture that apply to those who are seeking to live lives of obedient gratitude to Christ for what He has done for me. I find it very interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, when we talk about baptism, you'll notice here in your bulletin that it is for in one spirit that we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. There's a unity in it. We'll describe that again in more detail, but the first of the ordinances would be that of communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now again, we spent a lot of time talking about this. I think two separate messages on communion. Let me very briefly give you an overview and context. The context is that there were people at the love feast in Corinth, which was a large communal meal, and they were arriving early because they could. Their schedules were more flexible. And they were eating up all the food, and they were drinking up all the wine. And by the time the poor people got there, after work was done, everyone was full and drunk. And Paul says, this is absolutely unacceptable. It's better that you don't gather than that you gather and do this. And so, when it says discerning the body, it's not your physical body, it's the corporate body. You could say the body of Christ. And he says there that if you do that, if you judge yourself, then you won't be condemned. You see, judgment is God's discipline. Condemnation is God's wrath. Judgment is when the Lord comes and he says, you need to be disciplined. In the case of the Corinthian believers, some were sick and some were even dead. But Paul says you do that and you judge yourselves. 
in order to prove that you are not those who are subject to God's condemnation. God doesn't discipline those who are not his children. Hebrews taught us that. But he does discipline his children, sometimes very severely. So this ordinance that we practice here is a celebration. It's not a sad time. It's a time for us to cherish the fact that we are born of the Spirit, born again, and that when we come together here as a corporate body, we all come forward to receive it. And we take that symbol of bread and wine and we receive that as the symbol of the body and blood of Christ, the gospel in visible form. Uh, We are not like some who believe that this infuses grace. Uh, We are also not like some who think that it's merely a memorial and it could happen very rarely. We think it's very important. So we do it on a regular basis. We do it with sincerity. We do it with humility, with reverence, but not with fear. Instead, with joy. Now again, to baptism, true Christians are part of a body. And so that baptism is the public confession of faith in Christ that identifies us with the visible church. That's why we don't baptize infants, because we believe that it requires a profession of faith. We don't believe it creates faith. We don't believe it's the sign of the covenant that places you into the Christian church. We believe that it is a testimony to other believers that you are a Christian. So we preach the gospel. We practice the ordinances. And then finally, we do church discipline. This might be perhaps the most controversial of anything we'll talk about this morning. Now, I know there's a few places you could go in the Bible to talk about church discipline. The most common one is Matthew 18. I'm deliberately choosing not to go to Matthew 18 for two reasons. Number one, that's almost where everybody goes, and so you're already familiar with it. But secondly, that was taught by Jesus before the church was even instituted. I would rather go to a couple of passages within the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians to show you what it really looks like in real life. And so the first one is a passage that applied to somebody who was being excommunicated because of their sin. 1 Corinthians 5.5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now let's just tie this back to what we said earlier. This is a person who I think is a Christian. They're not under condemnation because it says that they are handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. If he is not a Christian already, it's the hopes that through this he will come to a knowledge of the truth. But this person was engaged in sexual sin that he was clearly not repentant of. And as a result, Paul says that this person is to be judged and they are to be removed from the fellowship. And that's church discipline. A church discipline is when you go to a brother one-on-one and you rebuke them for their sin. And if they don't listen to you, then you go with somebody else, not your friend, not your advocate, but somebody who is a witness to it, who's impartial, and then they call that person to repent. And if they still won't repent, then the assembly is told about it. Now, we believe here the assembly is those who have covenanted with us, the members. We don't do church discipline on a normal Sunday like this, where we have visitors and we have people who are not members of this church. Church discipline is not a spectator sport. It is done within the body that's covenanted together so that we can lovingly shepherd and try to care for that person. 
Now, I want you to understand also that church discipline is happening all the time around here, and that's why you never hear about it. Meaning that those first two steps are happening all the time, which is why very rarely does it ever have to get raised up to sort of a public declaration. But in the case of this man, it was, and he had to be taken out of the church. But I want you to see the real purpose of church discipline, and that is restoration. Church discipline exists so that the body of Christ can demonstrate gentle, loving restoration when that person repents and comes back. Notice this, 2 Corinthians 2.8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, it's not absolutely certain, but most commentators and scholars believe that this is a reference to that man in the previous letter, that this is the person who, because he acknowledged his sin, realized what he was doing was against God's holy law, repented of it, ended that relationship, came back to be part of that fellowship, and notice what Paul says by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. He is begging. This is not a legalistic demand. It's an invitation. True believers know what it means to be forgiven, so they're inclined to forgive others. If you knew that God was begging you to do something, how would you respond? Isn't it interesting that what he begs you to do is receive back a repentant brother or sister in Christ and to love on them? Wouldn't it be amazing if every church discipline ended with that person coming back and being absolutely overwhelmed and enveloped and sucked into this vortex of Christian love. Don't you think that would change the way that we view church discipline and maybe the rest of the world views it? Would you be willing to be the kind of church that can be very clear on sin, but also extraordinarily compassionate with the repentant? Will this church be a place where somebody not only thinks they can be received back, but knows they can be received back and then feels that they've been received back because the very gift of discipline has accomplished its purpose. Just like a parent who disciplines a child and when that child comes back to that parent, repentant and broken, that parent doesn't say, well, we'll see, you're on probation. That parent doesn't say, you know, that's the third time I've had to do that this week. I'm not sure I love you anymore. But rather with open arms, just like the parable of the prodigal son, running to receive that child back, throwing your arms around that child and saying, you are loved, you are family, you are welcome here. That is what church discipline should look like. The love of Christ constrains us. We are gentle, we're forgiving. The whole purpose of discipline is restoration so that whether it's a swift kind of discipline, like the kind you have to exercise on false teachers or on divisive people, or a very drawn out process where you're doing everything you can to get all the information and to call them repeatedly to repentance. 
If the divisive or disorderly, immoral or heretical turn from their impenitent habits of sin, they ought to be received back with love and joy. Beloved, there's an invisible church all over the world. All of those who are God's elect. There is a visible church, a local assembly that meets together in person. That's why we only have one service and we'll only ever have one service because if you have two services, you have two churches. We are one assembly. And that one assembly gathers every Lord's Day, whether the government requires it or forbids it, in order that they might hear the clear preaching of the law and the gospel, that they might celebrate in practicing the ordinances of baptism, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and so that we can constantly be obeying the Lord by bringing the sort of correction and admonishment into each other's lives that is necessary, but then to receive those back with love and gentleness when they repent, remembering that we too are sinners and those who have been forgiven much should be able to forgive much. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this truth and grateful for this church. It is such a sweet fellowship. And we pray that today there is any who has yet to fully understand and appreciate their hopeless state before you because of the holy demands of your law and the gracious provision you have made for us in Christ, that today would be the day when they understand, when the Holy Spirit gives them the regeneration of soul that results in faith expressed, and then by the power of your Spirit, the habitual walk of faith and grateful obedience. For those of us who do belong to you already, may today be a day of encouragement and reminder that you are the one ultimately whom we serve, and you are the one whom we seek to please. For it's your name we pray. Amen.